do with us. We love to work through books of the Bible, and uh, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, working our way through uh, this epistle. Originally, I was going to cover verses 11 to uh, chapter 6, verse 2 in one sermon, but I'm going to leave verses 16 to 6 to uh, for Easter. It's a great uh, Easter text. Do I need to use this? Yeah. All right, I'm about to get my televangelist on. I did handheld. Watch out. Um, I was talking to uh, Adam Mutasab, our church planter in Baltimore, and he asked me a question. Have you ever just stayed with the same book for Easter Sunday? And I said, yeah, I'm going to do it this year. And he asked me what my passage was, and he said, oh, that's money. That, that's, that's a layup. And uh, he says, I have Absalom's rebellion. So a bit more of a challenge. Uh, look forward to listening to it. Um, but when you preach the gospel every week from uh, all of Scripture, uh, every week in a sense is Easter, and uh, we're just going to keep doing what we do uh, next Sunday, and that is exalting Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we go to the Lord in prayer, asking for His help today. Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us in Holy Scripture. You have revealed to us the gospel. Uh, we may know there is a God in creation just by observing creation, but we don't have the specifics of the gospel apart from your word, and we thank you for specific revelation. And I pray that today our hearts would be uh, gladdened by the gospel, that you would bring illumination to our minds to understand uh, the words here, but you would also impress these things on our hearts that we may be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. All true Christians want to serve the Lord. That's one of our basic titles as a Christian is that we're, we're servants of God. And there are many ways you can serve. Uh, many ways you can serve in the church. We have a wonderful parking lot team. I don't know if you've noticed our parking lot crew. And we have a great uh, security team as well, which we're very uh, thankful for. You may participate in student ministry or children's ministry or women's ministry or men's ministry, in our hospitality ministry, in our counseling ministry. You could care for the elderly. You could get engaged in the various outreach ministries and mercy ministries that we have uh, in and through this church. You could lead a small group ministry. You could teach courses. You could preach sermons. There are many, many ways for us to serve God. Now, the question before us that I think this text answers today is, why do we serve? Because after all, there are bad motives for serving. And the Lord cares not just about what we do, but why we do what we do. So here are some bad motives. Guilt. This idea that I have to do this, but there's, there's no joy in it. And a joyless, guilt-driven service doesn't honor God, right? Or the fear of man is a, is a wrong motive. I don't want people to think negatively of me, so I'm going to do this. You could be driven by the love of the praise of man. That if I do this, people will admire me. They will say great things about me and be driven out of that desire to please people. You could be driven by pride and arrogance, thinking that if I do something, I can, I can be a big shot. Or you have this attitude, I wish everyone was like me. This church is so backward. I'm the only one thinking or doing this thing. That's what Elijah thought back in his day. He thought he was the only prophet, and the Lord had hundreds of them. You could be driven by power. That is, you just want to be, in the words of Hamilton, in the room where it happens in the room where it happens. You want to know how the sausage is made. A lot of people don't care how it's made. They don't want to care, but some do. 
You can be driven by resentment. That is kind of a grumbling that flows from anger. I'll do this, but no one will notice. Or I have to do this, or I think this is stupid. Or you could be driven by envy. Paul says in Philippians, some preach out of envy and rivalry. That's what they're driven by. But others out of goodwill. So they were in sort of competition with Paul. They wanted to harm Paul. They wanted to put Paul in his place. Now those are all terrible motives. And I regretfully have to say that I have been driven from one time or the other to, in, by all of these in various times. But this text gives us two pure motives for serving God. The fear of Christ and the love of Christ. This is why we serve. These are not the only two motivations. In fact, we looked at one previously in chapter 4, verse 15, that is the glory of God. We want to serve so that people will give thanks to God. But here he is highlighting the fear of the Lord, the fear of Christ, that we will stand before Him. Notice in chapter 5, verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So his gospel persuasion, that is his evangelism, is driven by the reality that the Lord is to be feared and that He is going to hold Him accountable for His life. So that's one motivation, this sort of accountability before the Lord that we have. And then the other appears down in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. This is the master motivation that controls our whole lives. That is, the love that Christ has for us leads us to service. It leads us to mission. And these are two non-contradictory motivations, awe of Christ and an overwhelming gratitude for the love of Christ. So let's look at those two today, the awe of Christ and the love of Christ. Verse 11, let me just give you three words to, uh, to, to uh, hang on to, accountability, urgency, and integrity. I'll try to get through it quickly before I blow off the stage. <laughs> First of all, he says, therefore, linking us back to the previous verses, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, he could have the whole chapter 5 in mind when he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, but I think he's probably got verses 9 and 10, specifically verse 10 in mind. Verse 10 comes before verse 11. It's interesting how that works. And in verse 10, he's made the statement that we looked at last week that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives. And Paul says, knowing this, we persuade others. That is, we, we do our job of being ambassadors for Christ. He goes on to say later in chapter 5, we'll look at next week, that, that he has been, like we have, entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And so we want to be faithful to what God has given us. Paul's not afraid when he thinks about the judgment seat of condemnation, nor should we. If we are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for us. We don't have to fear future wrath. Our sin has been dealt with on the cross, but we will be rewarded based on present faithfulness in this life. Therefore, everything that we do matters. And so we, we do our ministries of service knowing that we will give an account for the Lord. And I love how, how this fills all of our lives with such significance. Like Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, you will not lose your reward. Or in Luke 14, he says, if you're going to have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. They cannot repay you. And then he says, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
He fills our daily lives with meaning, knowing that He is taking notice of our obedience, of our love, of our service. And there are many things that Jesus will not ask us on that day, like, did you get a good tan? Or what, what level did you make it to on World of Warcraft? No, we, we quote the old saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The fear of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that believers are trembling, again, because we're not afraid of condemnation. That's been dealt with. Jesus has been c- condemned in place of us. But what it does mean is that we live with a certain reverential awe directed toward Christ. He is the Holy One. He is the righteous one. He is the all-knowing one. And there's something deeply wrong in us if we don't have a reverence and awe before Christ. When we consider His majesty, it causes us to live with humble loyalty. Work out your salvation, Paul says elsewhere, with fear and trembling, with a certain awe. Certainly a rich theology of the fear of the Lord throughout the Bible, isn't there? We'll come across in chapter 7, verse 1, how he says that we are to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. We know Proverbs is filled with this, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Ecclesiastes closes the book by saying that the whole duty of man is summarized in fear God and keep His commandments. And now we can add to that little theology of the fear of the Lord what Paul says here, we live with a reverence before God knowing that coming judgment uh, will happen, that we will give an account for our lives. Now, knowing this motivation, this sort of accountability, this sobering motivation, we do something, Paul says, we persuade others. All through chapter 5, there is a very strong emphasis on speaking. Verse 20 of chapter 5, we implore you. We are God's ambassadors. We appeal to you. And here he uses a word that pops up several times in the book of Acts, in Paul's ministry, and that is this word persuasion. When Paul goes into Thessalonica in Acts 17, it says some of them were persuaded to join Paul. When he went to Corinth in the very next chapter in Acts 18, it says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. The very next chapter when he goes to Ephesus, Luke says he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. And Paul did such a good job of it, and the Lord saved so many people that it threw the whole city in an uproar. And we read later in Acts 19, the people are saying about Paul, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not hands. Paul, what is your ministry about? It's quite a bit about persuading people to believe in the Messiah. Now, I wonder what you think about this idea of persuading. Some people may be suspicious of this idea because they confuse it and conflate it with manipulation. But the two should not be put together. Persuading people with the truth is different than trying to manipulate people with emotion. Persuading people with the truth is different than trying to manipulate people with false promises. We are a gospel-persuading people. We have good news, and we believe that people need to believe it. And so we want them to believe it, and we carry on this great tradition of setting before people the Jesus of the Scriptures and asking them to repent and believe in Him. Unless we think 
you know, we're kind of out of place in doing this. Let me just remind you that everybody is trying to persuade you to believe and embrace something. Take, for example, a short list. Carrot juice, food halls, CBD, whey protein, kale smoothies, sci-fi inspired sneakers, chocolate broken hearts, energy, energy ginger gummies, Zach's Mighty Organic Tortilla Chips, no soy, soy free sauce, milkadamia, bada bing, bada boom, buttery spread, salted or unsalted, quinoa salads, salad, the Justice League, Ted Lasso, and how to live a pollen free life. People telling us, you need to eat this, drink this, watch this, do this. They're persuading us all the time. So let's just join the persuading party and just say, hey, the gospel is too good to keep to ourselves. And the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and is the King, then we have a short amount of time to do this work of persuading. Now, notice it says persuading, not winning, because this implies that it's challenging. Paul did not have a 100% success rate. In fact, he got discouraged. In Acts chapter 18, he wanted to quit, and the Lord appears to him in a vision and strengthens him and encourages him. And so I think that's a very uh, important word of encouragement. The greatest missionary evangelist perhaps that's ever lived got discouraged. He found the work of gospel persuasion to be hard. And the Lord told Luke, or told Paul in Acts 18, go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I have many people in this city who are my people. He doesn't tell Paul, keep on speaking because you're so good at it, nor because you're so mighty and charismatic. He tells him, you speak, Paul, and I'll do the saving. You open your mouth, I'll do the work. And that's the great tradition that we're in, church. So let me just encourage you. This could look very simple, like inviting people to come with you on a Sunday, being a good neighbor, getting into good conversations, inviting someone to read the Bible with you, having a barbecue, and having conversations, learning to ask good questions. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This implies a measure of accountability, but also implied here is the second word, urgency. Urgency is implied in the fact that the new age has dawned. That's the context that we're looking at in 2 Corinthians. And people have a short amount of time to believe the gospel. The Messiah has come. The Spirit has been poured out. The Gentiles, the nations are flooding into the kingdom of God. And so we persuade others. Everyone will die and meet Christ or he will return. In either case, the opportunity then will be gone. And so there's a sense of urgency with which we try to persuade people to believe in the king. I love the moment in Acts 26 when Paul is before King Agrippa. And after hearing Paul's speech, Agrippa says, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And yes, in a short amount of time. Sometimes people say yes. Sometimes it takes long. But in either case, we have a sense of urgency about us. Now, the third word I mentioned there is the word integrity. At the end of verse 11, end of verse 13, Paul speaks about his evangelistic work being done out in the open, out in public. As he says in 11b, what we are 
is known to God. That is, there's no funny business going on with my ministry. Recall how Paul is, in this letter, trying to defend himself with, kind of out without defending himself. And the reason he's having to do that is because the gospel is at stake. There are false teachers making false claims about Paul, and he doesn't want them to go awry. And so he says, what we are is known to God. God knows me through and through. He knows my motives and everything about me. And Paul wants the Corinthians to have this same positive assessment. As he says, I hope it is also known to your conscience. And then the text gets a bit tricky as, as Paul is, again, trying to commend himself without commending himself. And so, he, lest he appears boastful in what he's saying, he says in uh, the, verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outer appearances. Literally, those who boast in the face looking at mere external appearances and not about what is in the heart. You can hear perhaps an echo of 1 Samuel 16 regarding David, that the Lord looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. And so Paul, again, is in this context dealing with these peddlers, as he calls them, or later super apostles, who boasted about outer appearances. They boasted about the speaker's oratorical skills. They boasted about those, uh, common, uh, those letters of condemnation, commendation. They, they were drawn to impressive power displays. But Paul was different. He did not look impressive on the outside. Little George Costanza going around the Mediterranean world, preaching the gospel, getting beaten up. He ministered out of a heart made alive by Christ and out of a heart in awe of Christ. So he keeps emphasizing, because he's emphasizing the new covenant, the importance of the heart. And then he continues in verse 13, his modest defense of his integrity, as he says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. I wonder what you do with that statement. What does Paul mean when he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God? Many options. It could simply mean that people were accusing Paul of being like Jesus was accused of being a madman or insane. Or maybe they thought that Paul was crazy because of his suffering, of his manner of ministry. Or maybe it was his indefatigable, I can't say that word, the inexhaustible work ethic, indefatigable, that's what I was looking for, that as they looked at Paul's zeal, they thought this guy's crazy. Or maybe because of his ideas. When he was before Festus, Paul, uh, Festus said to Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But I think the best option, in my opinion, and based on the immediate context here of the situation in Corinth, is that Paul is speaking of his private experiences with the Lord, which were sometimes extraordinary. It is for God, meaning it's between me and God. But it wasn't the ground of his legitimacy as a minister. You know, Paul speaks later in this letter of being caught up into the third heaven, whatever that is. Paul experienced some stuff. <laughs> and extraordinary experiences were highly valued in Corinth, and that's why Paul spends so much time in 1 Corinthians 14 on charismatic gifts. 
And perhaps that's what he has in mind here. If I'm out of my mind, it is for God. But it's not the grounds of his authenticity. He goes on to say, if I'm in my right mind, it is for you. So he defends the legitimacy of his ministry, not based on private encounters, but upon his transparent, rational, gospel persuasion in public. As he urged people to turn to the Lord and be reconciled to God, this is what made Paul's ministry authentic. The mark, in other words, of an authentic ministry was not ecstatic experiences, but the public ministry of the Word, done in a very sober, reasonable, gospel-persuading way. Biblical exposition was prioritized over personal ecstasies. A legit ministry is one that focuses on publicly ministering the Word to people in a straightforward, reasonable way. So if you become a Christian, you don't check your brain at the door. No, bring your brain and engage the world with the truth and power of the gospel in a way that's intelligible, rational, and winsome. And when we do, God does the work of converting people. So we aim to do this gospel persuasion in view of our accountability before the Lord. We do it with a sense of urgency, and we always do it with motives of integrity that honor God. So what drives our service? What drives our speaking of the gospel? First of all, Paul lays out for us a healthy awe of Christ. Secondly, he is motivated by the love of Christ. Notice the second motivation here in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. This is the master motivation, the great engine for the Christian life. That is, as we ponder Christ's love for us, it dominates our lives. It, it controls us, Paul says. It compels us. It changes the way we spend money. It changes the way we spend time. It changes the way, as we'll look at next week, the way we see the whole world. The love that Christ has shown us controls us. The word literally means to, to him in. And it's used of the time in which the soldiers held Jesus in custody. They controlled him. The love of Christ constrains us. We are bound to Christ. His love dominates us. As Calvin says, not Calvin and Hobbes, but the reformer, everyone who truly considers and ponders the wonderful love that Christ has shown us in his death cannot but be bound to him by the tightest chain so as to devote himself to his service. As we consider the wonderful love that Christ has shown us, we're bound to him. This love compels us to even love our enemies. This is the opposite of Jonah, the reluctant missionary who did not want to go to Nineveh. And when the Lord saved the Ninevites, he says, I knew you were gracious and merciful. How dare you save those people? This is the opposite motivation. This is a heart that is overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus Christ has loved his enemies. You and I reconciled us to God, and the sheer fact of that controls our lives. Love so amazing, the hymn says, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. The verb here, died, is in a tense that speaks of a particular moment in history speaking of the events of Easter. But it's not just the simple fact that Jesus died that motivates Paul. It's what Christ's death accomplished. And that's in that little word, for. The gospel 
is all in these prepositions. That, that Christ did something for us at the cross. He died for us. He died instead of us. He died in place of us. In other words, his death was a substitutionary death. It was a saving death. He was the lamb that was slain for us. As the hip-hop writer KB says, he's the lamb and the goat. That is the greatest of all time. And you see this all throughout the epistles. Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. 5, 8, Christ died for us. Romans 8, 32, but God gave himself for us all. Romans 14, 15, for the one for whom Christ died. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. this is my body that is for you. 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we'll look at next week. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 2, 20, he loved me and gave himself for me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. He gave himself as a ransom for all. And this is what drove Paul. And what we have to do, church, is work the gospel deeply in our hearts again and again and again, daily pondering the love that Christ has for us. Take a text like Ephesians 3, 14 and 21, where Paul is praying that we would know the love of Christ and work it in your mind and in your heart. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that out of the riches of his glory, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You ponder that love. You reflect on that love. You rehearse that love. And that has a changing effect on your life. Paul in verses 14 and 15 gives us a little theological shorthand. Short reflection upon Christ dying for us when he says, first of all, that one died for all. The one, of course, is Jesus. He is the second Adam. I think that's what Paul has in mind here, kind of this Adam-Christ uh, antithesis. There's only salvation in this one. This one has died for us. This is why we go to the nations with the gospel, because there's only one who can save. Stott says, why is it that some Christians cross land and sea, continents and cultures as missionaries? What on earth impels them? Is it not in order to commend a civilization? It is not in order to commend a civilization, an institution, or an ideology, but rather a person, Jesus Christ whom they believe to be unique, and he is unique. And this one died for all, that is Jew and Gentile. He died for the nations. doesn't mean that Jesus saved everyone. That's, that would be what we call universalism. But his death is sufficient to save all. And he died as a representative for all humanity. As he says, all died. Right? All of humanity, in some sense, died with Christ, the second Adam, though not in an atoning way, but all of humanity has been incorporated into this new representative. His death was sufficient to save all people, which is why we preach it to all people, but only efficient to those who believe, which is why Paul introduces a third category in the verse when he says, those who live. Not all are in that category, right? 
But there are some who trust Christ, who believe in Christ, and they live, right? Those who embrace him walk, as we say, in the newness of life. Now notice this purpose clause. We're about to be finished here. Paul mentions here again the the events of Easter, the cross and resurrection, and he says that Christ died for all and that he, and those who live, that those who live may no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He doesn't say that Christ died and rose so that we would not be condemned, though that's gloriously true. Nor that he died and rose for our justification, like he says in Romans 5, or Romans 4 rather. But what he says is actually another purpose. There are many reasons for which Christ died. This is a very practical reason. And this is the last thought we'll have today. That is that we would not be self-absorbed people. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. That we would be Christ-centered people. The cross and the resurrection, the events of Easter, should make us selfless and Christ-centered not for ourselves, but for him. The work of Christ on Easter weekend not only saves us from condemnation, but it sets us free to serve Christ and other people. In other words, the gospel frees us from our addiction to ourselves. The gospel frees us from self-absorption. This miserable, narcissistic life gets turned around into the joyful service of Christ and other people. Christianity is not me-centered, it is Christ-centered. And as we daily rehearse the gospel, we are set free to exalt Jesus and care for people. This is what happens when the love of Christ is controlling you. We belong to Christ, and that changes everything. Frees us from our love affair with self. And gives us new affections and new loves. Ponder that little phrase there. No longer, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. If you're a Christian out here or watching online, your testimony is a no longer. You have a no longer in your statement. That's Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That's Galatians 4, 7. We are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Or Ephesians 4, 17, we must no longer walk as the unbelievers do. If you're not a Christian, what we're calling you to is to trust Christ, the one who died the death you should have died, who rose conquering what you could never conquer, who says he will have you. You can come to him. He will free you. He will forgive you. And you too can have a no longer. You can say goodbye to your idols. You can say goodbye to your slavery. And you can say hello to Christ in his church. And if you are a Christian, let me encourage you to remind yourself today and tomorrow and the rest of the week when you are tempted that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You belong to another. You are no longer of this old age. You have been set free to be a new creation. This one who loved us, gave himself for us, who rose for our justification, who is coming again, to make all things new, and to bring perfect righteousness and peace. And as we read earlier, here on Palm Sunday, we rejoice in the King of Peace. He gives us peace right now in our hearts, having been justified by faith, 
and he gives us the power to be at peace with one another and to be peacemakers in this world. We worship this Christ today. Some 2,000 years ago, he rode into Jerusalem on a little colt. He was reachable. He was accessible. And he's still accessible. You can embrace him. You can have him today as your Savior. But one day he's going to return in power and glory, not on a little colt, not as a humble little Galilean, but as an exalted warrior coming on a war horse. As John writes in Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written which, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's rejoice in him, church. He is everything to us. Father, we bless you today for the truth of the gospel. I pray that the power of it would transform lives. I pray for those who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation and they would do so. For those who are Christians, we pray today that you would apply this word to our lives, that we would live with a, a healthy awe of Christ, knowing our accountability to him, and that we would live being motivated by the love of Christ, thinking over again and again and again what he has done for us, that we would not be self-absorbed people, but we would be Christ-centered, others-oriented people. Do that work in our heart. That's a miracle work, and we pray you would do it. Bless your church now as we turn our attention to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen.